Hi, listeners. I want to tell you about a cause that I'm involved with at Heritage Radio Network. HRN is celebrating its 15th year, and to celebrate, we're deepening our commitment to giving voice to the next generation of food system storytellers, and we need your help. Our internship and fellowship programs help activate new possibilities for underrepresented and underestimated young people through experiential journalism, audio engineering, and production training. Through these unique programs, HRN helps food equity stewards build essential workforce readiness skills that expand their potential and foster economic mobility. Please consider supporting these critical programs. And with a minimum donation, you can be entered to win a dinner for two at an amazing restaurant in one of eight cities and tickets to a concert at a great venue in one of those cities. We have incredible partners across the country who have donated as they also share our passion for helping to educate the next generation of food system storytellers. Check out heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. That's heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. And make sure you donate before March 31st. Thank you. Hey everyone, it's Cam Hurt, host of the Best Show Ever podcast. And we have got a second season coming out very soon that I am very excited about got some very cool special guests, including musical acts that we all love, like Karina Reichman, Daniel Donato, Jake Brownstein from Eggy, Rick and Peter from Goose, and many more. Tune in for new episodes dropping on Osiris Media March 5th on the Best Show Ever podcast. Osiris. So, Rob, I try to keep 36 from the vault a zone of purity devoid of capitalistic concerns. You know, I don't want to just use this as a vehicle to plug my shit. But I will say there is some contemporary relevance to uh, my book coming out in September, Long Road, Pearl Jam, and the Soundtrack of a Generation, uh, due out September 27th, although available for pre-order now. Uh a theme of that book is talking about Pearl Jam's interactions with Ticketmaster in the mid-1990s. Of course, if you were alive at the time, you remember that they uh, tried to uh, work outside of Ticketmaster at the time, and it proved to be kind of a disaster, right. which was funny because they were, you know, the whole thing was that Ticketmaster was a monopoly, and I feel like Pearl Jam proved it by attempting to tour without Ticketmaster and it being almost impossible to do effectively. And it was just funny, and as I write about this in the book, that a lot of people looked at them at the time as being really wrong-headed for doing this, that maybe it was idealistically correct, but that they really had no chance of ever succeeding in doing this, so why even bother? Right. And I feel like history has judged them fairly or has come around to them because as we've seen recently, I mean, Ticketmaster is like worse than ever. Yeah. Oh, yeah. It's gotten exponentially worse, even recently, I think. Like this thing, you know, you're not really a Springsteen fan, but I'm a Bruce huh. Springsteen fan. You're like a medium fan. Yeah. Oh, when they announced this tour, I was like, yeah, maybe I'll go see Springsteen. But they're doing this thing, Ticketmaster is now. And like, look, I see people blaming Bruce for this, and, and look, he's a very powerful person in the industry, and he definitely deserves some criticism, but this is something that's bigger than just Bruce Springsteen, because I've seen this with shows that I've tried to buy tickets for, that there's this thing 
that Ticketmaster does now that if there's a lot of demand for a particular ticket, that they raise prices in the moment. Yeah, that right it, away. It's like, it, like as soon as they go on sale. So if there's like a lot of people waiting in a queue, a ticket that might cost, say, $100, all of a sudden is like $400 mm-hmm. or $500, or in the case of the Springsteen tour, tens of thousands of dollars in cases, or at least several thousand dollars. Yeah. Uh, I, I mean, have you had experience with this? I mean, this seems like the most evil thing I can think of, at least in the music business. They have a perfectly evil name for it. They call it, what, dynamic pricing, I think. Right. Uh, and their description is like, we're just uh, following the model set by airline tickets and you know ride shares and things like that, where it's like the higher the demand will be reflected in the price. They, of course, like claim that it's anti-scalper. Uh, so basically, they're the scalpers, right? <laughs> I mean, it's not anti-scalper. They're just taking the place of the scalper in this case and, and algorithmically making like immediate scalping prices. So Yeah, it'd be like if you were going to a physical ticket booth and the scalper was inside the booth. You know, right. like, it's not even a scalper buying it from the proper place and then reselling it. It's like, no, the scalper is inside the building now, and exactly. you have to deal with them. And I, I'm just, you know, is this all Ticketmaster's fault? I Because you look at ticket prices from even, like, the 80s. Right. And I don't feel like they were this bad, you know? And it, it feels like in the 90s it just starts to go up and up and up. Basically, the era that we started going to concerts, you and I, we've just caught the shit end of the stick here, our whole lives as music <laughs> fans. Yeah. From from Ticketmaster and Live Nation, whoever, you know, is pulling the strings here. Yeah, I remember, you know, being outraged that I had to pay like $5 for a service fee on a $30 ticket, <laughs> which I guess proportionally is probably about the same as what you pay today. It just like, it's funny to think about. Oh, five dollars! What an injustice! And that's probably, that's kind of like the type of prices that Pearl Jam was fighting. Yeah, that the was 90s, the Pearl right? Jam. Yeah, the Pearl Jam yeah. issue was service fees that they wanted yeah. to keep their ticket price under a certain amount, and they couldn't because Ticketmaster was adding these fees that jacked up the price. And you're right. Back then, it would have been you know you want to charge eighteen dollars, and they end up adding five or six dollars. Right. Uh, right. Which, which I mean, really, if you adjust for inflation, it is about the same thing that you'd be dealing with now. I mean, fees are obviously way bigger. But yeah, this dynamic pricing thing, it's just taking it to a whole other level of like nefariousness. Yeah. And, you know, to compare yourself to the airlines, <laughs> like saying, like, we want to be more like the fucking airlines? Are you kidding <laughs> me? Yeah. And it's like the I mean, worst the, thing that you'd want to be like. The. The sad thing is that in the 90s, I did, when the Pearl Jam stuff was going on, I did feel like I was in a good spot being a Fish fan in the 90s because it felt like the jam bands had figured it out. So when Pearl Jam was putting up their big fight, I remember feeling a little like snooty about it and being like, like, you know, they are trying to, you know, fix a problem that's already been solved by bands like Fish, who had mail order ticket systems, of course, pioneered by the dead. As far back as the 70s. Uh, we're not going to sell through ticket brokers. We're not going to sell, or we'll let t- the venues sell some tickets, but we're going to hold a portion of the tickets, sell them directly to our fans. We're going to set up this whole sort of complicated process to get those tickets. Uh, but 
by being a complicated process, it, it was not worth the scalper's time, right? Because you had to jump through all these hoops and send an envelope and get a money order from the post office and all these crazy things. So it wasn't worth it for scalpers to buy the all those face value tickets and then resell them for higher prices. So I always felt like I was getting a good deal at Fish concerts in the 90s compared to you know actual popular bands like, like Pearl Jam, because you could pretty much guarantee yourself tickets uh, if you just did the mail order process. Now, there's still mail order for Fish and for other jam bands, but I feel like it's, uh, they have also kind of gotten sucked into the Ticketmaster Live Nation thing, probably because there is no true alternative, but you and I just bought tickets to see Fish at Alpine. I always shed a little tear when I buy Fish tickets today because a typical Fish ticket now is roughly what I paid for the entire Big Cypress Festival in 1999, <laughs> which was, you know, basically 20 hours of live music and three nights of camping and uh, all of that for $150. And now, like, unless you get incredibly lucky on Ticketmaster, that's about what you're paying for a ticket at a fish show today. So. And when we were trying to buy fish tickets originally through Ticketmaster, we were dealing with this dynamic pricing thing. I mean, that's why we had to wait to buy tickets for Saturday because right. th those were just, like, off the charts crazy. Not as bad as the Springsteen ticket prices were but you know marked up by several hundred dollars uh mm -hmm. especially if you want the pavs which rob and i want the pavs because <laughs> we're old we're old yeah don't want to and like the lawn at alpine it, you know we've talked about this before but it's on a pretty steep incline especially if you have 45 year old man knees and uh just standing there for like three hours is just not tenable i like having a seat too I don't sit down during the show proper, but it's nice to have a designated area where if you go to buy a beer, you go to the bathroom, you, you know you got your spot. You don't have to fight people yeah. for your little piece of real estate. It's already been purchased. I wanted to say something quick. And again, referencing my book, Long Road, Pearl Jam and the Soundtrack of a Generation, uh, due in store September 27th, but you can pre-order now. I do write also about how in like late 90s early 2000s era Pearl Jam started uh, studying the Grateful Dead model and they actually like went to the Grateful Dead offices to see how they conducted their business and part of that was the mail order uh, program that you were talking about as well as just their fan engagement and that was one of the things that really ended up prompting Pearl Jam to put a lot more attention onto their own fan club which is the 10 club and that was the beginning of them moving in more of like a jam bandy direction, at least in terms of how they operate as a business. Not so much musically, although there's some musical jam band attributes in PJ. But yeah, that is an interesting connection, looking at the Grateful Dead as like not just a great band, but like as a business model that right. makes sense to follow. And as a lot of the bands of the 90s fell apart, as alternative rock fell apart and eventually the rock sort of industry fell apart Pearl Jam was a band that was able to continue on because they were doing some of the things that you're talking about here that jam bands were already doing in the mid 90s when Pearl Jam was trying to fight Ticketmaster right and it's not like every band could do that because you basically have to hire like full-time employees to run your ticket program at that point um and I think the other problem now right is that uh Live Nation owns like every venue in the country and Live Nation and Ticketmaster are the same company? I can never keep this stuff clear. <laughs> are I don't they the know. same company or whatever? I don't know. It's the so evil, I don't really want to learn that much about it. But it sounds, basically, you 
either have to play the Ticketmaster game or you have to play, like, you know, the five venues that are not owned by Live Nation. And that's tough to do. So, you know, bands like Fish, bands like Dead & Company, they have kind of given up. They just play the game. It's it's sad. Things things are bad. <laughs> what yeah. Well, you were talking about how little, relatively little, you paid to go to this big festival in the right. late 90s. You, you actually found this link... If you really want to feel bad out there, folks, <laughs> for how much tickets cost now, you found this scale that was sort of like a, I guess, a, like, a, like a mean ticket price for each year of the dead. Yeah, the Grateful Seconds blog did a, a, a really nice rundown. Uh, if you just search Grateful Seconds and Grateful Dead touring revenues, you'll get to this too. But he, he figured out like average ticket price and revenues. Uh, for each year of the Grateful Dead's existence, uh, and uh, we're covering some 1971 shows today. And just to give you an idea, the average price of a ticket in 1971, $4. Woo! Four bones. I, I ran it through the inflation calculator, because, of course, the dollar isn't what it used to be. Uh, yeah, because back then you could make, like, $250 a year, and you were, like, living <laughs> in a mansion. Right? Exactly. That's what it was like back then. Right, right. But, uh, you know, it, it, even with the uh, inflation adjustment, it's still, uh, it's only $29.27. So, uh, a 71 dead show in today's money, you wouldn't even have spent $30. Now, you probably would have spent, you know, another 30 on service fees and another 50 on parking and another 75 on beer. But, uh, yeah, that, what a bargain. <laughs> There's yeah. no, uh, no better pound-for-pound uh, pound, uh, way to spend your money on a rock concert, I think. Yeah, well, I mean, I think that's more than reason enough for us to go back to 71, man. Should we go back? Let's get in the, uh, the phone booth and travel back. That was a great dinner. So great. Wait, where'd you park the car? Oh, the one I just sold at Carvana. What? When did you do that? When you were still looking at the menu. I went on Carvana.com and all I had to do was enter the license plate or VIN, answer a few questions, and got a real offer in seconds. They picked up the car already? No, I parked around the corner. But they are picking it up tomorrow and paying me right on the spot. Oh, no wonder you picked up the check. Yeah, about that. Uh, thought we were going halfsies. Sell your car to Carvana. Visit Carvana.com or download the app to get a real offer in seconds. Thirty-six from the vault. My name is Steve. My name is Rob, and yeah, we're at thirty-five of thirty-six. Wow, wow man, yeah, crazy. Tix picks thirty-five, and uh, we're we're like in a bunch of different venues for Dix yeah. picks thirty-five. This is in a bunch of different dates. It's August of seventy-one, but August seventh in San Diego, August twenty-fourth in Chicago, and August sixth. 
we're dabbling in in uh, the Hollywood Palladium in Hollywood, California. Right. Uh, and uh, man, we haven't been in seventy one in a while. Yeah, since Dick's Picks two. I like that the second Dick's Picks is seventy one, and the second to last Dick's Picks is seventy one. Just for that, yeah. that symmetry, uh, series wide symmetry. Uh, yep. So yeah, it's uh, and this is a really different Dick's Picks than Dick's Picks two as well. So uh, very. Very different flavor to this one, even though they're only separated by a couple months, right? That one's October. It's a Halloween show, right? Yeah. And I remember Dick's Picks, too. There was no Donna. And, you know, this goes back to the early years of the Dick's Picks here. It definitely seemed like there was a conspiracy theory theory against Donna. Picking <laughs> right. Donna-era shows where Donna wasn't there. Uh, but on this show, like, Keith isn't there yet, either. No. This is the five-piece dead. This is super stripped-down dead here. Yeah. Um, and Keith not being there, it, it also is part of the origin story for these recordings being found. I mean, because right. th- 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 these, are, these are the houseboat tapes. Yes. The, the famous. Yes. Like, are these like Keith's, was this like Keith's houseboat or was it like somebody else's houseboat? It was his parents' houseboat. So apparently the story goes and sometime in 1971 when they had recruited Keith, to join the band, which he wouldn't do until October, uh, they sent him a bunch of tapes uh, and said, you know, here's all of our material that we are currently playing. Uh, you know, I think they were like reel-to-reel tapes. They're like, put them on, play along with it, learn what we're playing, and join up with us on tour in October. Uh, these tapes were thought to be lost forever, um, but in the mid-2000s, 2005, I think, uh, Keith and Donna's son... I want to say his name is Zion, uh, was, uh, I guess, cleaning out Keith's parents' houseboats and stumbled across these tapes that had somehow survived for 40 years uh, floating on the water <laughs> See, how were is, still how, playable. How, how is that possible? You're on a houseboat. <laughs> imagine, like, anyone, like, imagine yourself being yeah. on a houseboat for 40 years. Yeah. I, I feel like that is a recipe for anything going to seed. You know, exactly. you're, you're, you know, it's houseboats in general to me just seem like a symbol of decadence. I feel like <laughs> if, if you have a houseboat, like, like if you have enough money, you buy a houseboat, you're probably going to end up murdered on that houseboat. <laughs> I, I, I just feel like that's there's like a one in three chance you're going to end up murdered on your own houseboat. Um, and I guess there's like a one in three chance that you'll also discover, you know, some bitchin' Grateful Dead tapes too. But right. I just feel like, I just feel like it'd be so damp and like right. aren't there like storms happening and yeah. you know salt. All I don't know if it was on the ocean or a lake, but yeah, you would think just the humid air would be bad. It's you know they've I, I can't imagine how many millions of dollars the Grateful Dead have spent on archiving the vault. And thank God they've done that and they have some like you know totally sealed off fireproof like facility where they keep all these tapes but it's really funny to me that then they just found some tapes on a boat had been sitting on a boat for 35 years and put it on a dick's fix and it sounds you know a little bit uh fuzzier i guess than your typical dick's picks but not significantly so no i i I mean i think uh the sound quality is like pretty damn good on here i really liked it i in we were talking, you know, there's some harshness to Jerry's tone on mm-hmm. this record that I like a lot. I mean, I don't think that's because of the houseboat effect. I think it's just Jer. <laughs> but yeah. um, I'm just wondering, like, were people using this houseboat? Like, did they have to, like, step over the tapes? Like, were they using it as a, as a coaster for, like, a cocktail <laughs> when they're 
entertaining on the houseboat. Yeah. I, I, like, what is the situation? I don't know. I'm just very intrigued by this Stored houseboat situation. Stored next to the life preservers or uh, <laughs> yeah. like, whatever, the flares, whatever you keep in a houseboat. I'm pretty sure, exactly. like... I think his parents were living in it. I think it was like your typical, like, we got to go clean out grandma and grandpa's boat because they just passed away so we can <laughs> sell the boat. And, oh, my gosh, there's priceless Grateful Dead recordings in this boat. <laughs> so my, uh, <laughs> my grandparents never had a houseboat, so I can't relate to that scenario where you'd have to go clean the house. I guess I'm just totally, uh, you know, naive about houseboat maintenance culture. or <laughs> culture <laughs> houseboat culture uh you know because i'm just having a hard time wrapping my head around this but you know thank goodness they found these tapes and that it ended up in uh, dick's picks 35 uh excited to dive into it but before we get to that uh let's do our mailbag segment and uh thank you all again for writing into us it's always great to hear from our listeners you can hit us up at 36 ftv mailbag at gmail.com uh, do you want to read the first one, Rob? Right. Yeah. This is a this is an an interesting one. I didn't think we'd be pulled into this conspiracy, but hey, do the podcast long enough, anything can happen. So this one uh, comes from Drew in Cleveland. Drew says, "Hey, Stephen, Rob, been loving the pod, and thanks to you, have been converted from a dead skeptic to a true deadhead. I like to think of you guys as my dead dads." Oh, oh, wow. That's nice. That's, um, that's beautiful. That's much better than, uh, what was it, Dickheads was the name yeah. uh, people came up for our fans. I like Dead Dads. Yeah. Uh, yeah. And I, you know, I'm curious, you know, now that we're getting down to the end of the show, this is just a diversion from Drew's letter. Sorry, Drew. How many people we actually got into the dead? I wouldn't think that we were the podcast to listen to if you were trying to get into the dead. but We coincided with the pandemic. Mm. So, and I think the pandemic seemed like a growth spurt for deadhead nation anyway and maybe people related to us because they're like we don't know anything about the dead these guys on this show don't know anything about the dead (laughs) it's a great place to just hang out you know i won't feel like judgment um, lost yeah exactly exactly Exactly. uh so hey if we got you into the dead and we only have one more week to read letters, uh, so uh, let us know if you had a dead awakening from us. I'd love to hear it. Uh, all right, back to Drew. Speaking of fathers and sons, I recently uncovered an interesting tidbit that I wanted to share with you. As usual, right-wing media is obsessed with Hunter Biden, and in the process, just make him look like more of a badass. <laughs> According to Yahoo News, Hunter's iCloud account was recently hacked by a 4chan user who claimed to have photos depicting drug-fueled parties with sex workers personal texts, and a photo of Hunter enjoying a water slide while nude. Which, hey. With any of that, yeah. No, I mean, you know, look, I'm not going to comment on the first two things, but water (laughs) going on a water slide nude, I mean, that does seem very refreshing. I've never had that opportunity. you got to have access. It's like the houseboat thing. I don't know anyone with a houseboat. I don't know anyone with their own water slide. And if I did, you'd have to really be friends with them. For them to be like, yeah, you can just rub your junk all over my water slide. <laughs> I have no problem with that. That's right. like a big. So I don't know if Hunter. So God bless Hunter Biden if he has yeah. that kind of access. That might be my goal for the <clears throat> for our Alpine weekend now. <laughs> oh man, is a nude water slide. Well, uh, we'll anyway, see. We'll see what happens. Anyone in the anyone like in what uh, like Elkhorn? Like what's it? Is it Elkhart Elkhorn, Lake? East Troy? Yeah. East Troy. That's it. Anyone in the East Troy area with a water slide? Who wouldn't mind 
the middle-aged <laughs> male junk being rubbed on it. Let us know. Hit us up. 36 FTP mailbag. <laughs> right. Hit up the mailbag. <laughs> uh, anyway, sorry, Drew. <laughs> uh, but back to the letter. Uh, while these juicy photos are making news, the big revelation for me was Hunter's full name, which Secret Service mentioned in this Yahoo article. His full name is Robert Hunter Biden. Oh, I had no idea. Yeah. Given Joe and Jill Biden's relatively conservative history, I find it a stretch to think they would be fans of the dead and would name their child after the Robert Hunter. But as we've learned with a few other bowtie-wearing neocons, dead fandom is hard to pin down across the political spectrum. Anyway, thought you'd find this interesting and wonder if you know of any dead connection in the Biden-verse. I guess Sleepy Joe and NASA did manage to reveal a few dark stars earlier this week. Best of you and yours, Drew in Cleveland. So, wow, I had no idea. Robert Hunter Biden. And, yeah, I did a little research. And by research, I mean I Googled uh, Hunter Biden while you were reading the letter. And I see that Hunter Biden's birthday is February 4th, 1970. Oh. Which is around the time of Dick's Picks, uh, what is that, Dick's Picks 4. Yeah. Is, I mean, it's, it's uh, a, 10 days before, right? Nine and 10 days, but still. Close enough. So, you know, I don't know what that means. Probably nothing. <laughs> but it's another connection here. <laughs> Hunter Biden, born around the time of Dick's Picks 4. I don't know. I've never heard about Joe Biden being a deadhead. I have no I idea. I am this was a- doing some, some quick Google sleuthing. And, man, the Joe Biden Grateful Dead search does not turn up much. Other than... <laughs> uh, Hanging out with the dead when they visited the White House during Obama's administration, of course. Uh, but I, I was hoping maybe there was a secret photo of Joe Biden at like a 1976 dead show in Hartford or something. But uh, no, does not seem to to exist, sadly. But, you know, hey, conspiracies have been built on much less than uh, this information. So maybe there's, there's uh, something there. I was just going to say Joe Biden from Delaware. Guess how many shows the dead have played in Delaware? Uh, zero. Zero. Goose Ooh. egg. No yeah. shows for Delaware. And they're in the <laughs> and they're in the East Coast area. You know, they're East Coast. You know, couldn't go to Dover. Couldn't play Rehoboth Beach. <laughs> Do a Rehoboth Wilming- Beach gig. Wilmington. No, yeah. Nothing. Nothing for Delaware. So yeah. that again, it undermines the Joe Biden connection to the Grateful Dead. But I don't know, maybe someone out there, if you know about Joe Biden's history with the dead, or if you know if Hunter Biden maybe hit up some dead shows in the 80s, you know, he he might have rubbed shoulders with uh, John Mayer at some point, at some party. I could see that happening. That's true. They're, Hunt- they're from the same uh, neck of the woods, kind of. So yeah. It could happen. could happen. Thank you for that insight, though, Drew. And uh, for the sweet letter. Uh, Our second letter comes from Dave. Dave did not say where he's from. Dave, we'd like to hear where you're from. We'll just assume that uh, you're from the upper Midwest, like (laughs) me and Rob. Uh, Hey, guys. Oh, wait. He says it right in the first sentence of this letter. Dave from Uh. Virginia. I'm sorry. I look. I are we actually reading these emails ahead of time? We're probably not. So he's from Virginia. <laughs> All right. Thank you, Dave. First time, long time. I'm sitting with my son at Dead Co. Remarking on how few berries there are in the set list. We have a theory that maybe Jerry is the berry fan, and he made Bobby sing all those berries. He did tear the berries up. Maybe he's like, I don't care, Bobby. We're doing two berries tonight. 
After all, Garcia did write Alabama Getaway, which essentially is a Jerry Berry. Yes, you are correct. Love the show. Hope you find something to do together after you get through the 36. Dave from Virginia. So this is like another conspiracy theory here that Bob was like a puppet of Jerry (laughs) to play all the berries. Yeah. Uh, yeah, that's an interesting thing. Yeah, because it seems I I haven't I didn't double check this. I don't know if uh, Dead and Co has cut down on the berries, but it seems just from my anecdotal observations, it doesn't seem like they play berry as much as the Dead did. Back yeah, I was looking this up. They've only played. Uh, looks like they've only played, you know, Promised Land and Johnny Be Good a handful of times. It's not like they haven't played it at all. I'm counting, uh, looks like about eight Johnny B. Goods and five Promised Lands. But, I mean, given the frequency with which we hear Promised Land <laughs> in 70s Dead, that is a, uh, that's a bust out. So Yeah, I'm, I'm a little surprised that they haven't played Promised Land more because mm. that does seem like a traditional set opener. You know, uh, I mean, have they played around and around at all mm. from what you can see? I will have to look that up. But, you know, I think in this kind of... I don't actually it, care that much. You don't have to look that hard. <laughs> I can do the research. Uh, but uh, I don't see any around and arounds. That's interesting. Uh, but I think, you know, to tie it into this episode and where we're going to go, talking about 1971, it's I, I, it's a good theory that Jerry was the Berry fan, and I'm sure he loved ripping into some Chuck Berry guitar solos. But I think what's pretty clear from this era in 71, there are a lot of covers on this Dick's Picks. And most of them are sung by Bob. And the early 70s, I I feel like there's, you're kind of catching a moment in Grateful Dead history where Bob hadn't written that many songs himself. So he plays a lot more covers. And Bob, you know, sings all the Chuck Berry songs and I think uh, was the one that would go to it more often uh, than than Jerry calling for it. But, you know, that's, that's not that supported either. So I think now he just has more songs, right, Bob? Not only does he have more of his own songs, but he gets to sing all the, like, sad Jerry songs as well. So yeah. there's not as much need to drop into the Chuck Berry catalog as there was back in the 70s. I mean, in a way, Bob is, like, covering Jerry in the dead now in Dead & Co. So right. you've got that whole songbook to deal with. You don't need to dip into the Berry as much. But, yeah, I am surprised that there's not more Promised Land in um, in Dead & Co. I wonder where Mayor falls on the Berry you know, uh, paradigm here. If he's maybe he's saying like, "Hey, enough with the Barry." Yeah, maybe Mayor he's, hates he, Chuck Barry. <laughs> <laughs> he's, he's like, it's like, you know, just enough with the Barry here. Let's uh, let's go elsewhere. Um, let's get into the show here. Let's talk about the context for this Dick's Picks thirty five that uh, we're going to be exploring in this episode. This album came out June seventeenth, two thousand five. Do you remember what you were doing in June of oh five, Rob? June of June of 05, I Man. was in grad school. So wow. I was measuring electrical activity from the brains of rats. Wow. <laughs> that, that's pretty psychedelic right there. Yeah, well, you know, probably listening to a lot of Dead while I did it, too. Man, very, very cool. I was living in Appleton, Wisconsin, working for a small town newspaper. That's all I remember. <laughs> uh, not a very good story. Uh, this is a four banger, right. uh, and you know we were accustomed to that in our final season. Very few small meals, all multi-course banquets. Um, this is smaller than some of them, 
but bigger than others, so we're right in the middle here. Uh, you mentioned that this was recorded by Rex Jackson. Right. So, long time Grateful Dead crew member, uh, Rex Jackson. He also recorded Dick's Picks 2, so I think he just had uh, show recording responsibilities in 1971. It's funny how it just kind of like jumps from crew member to crew member over time. Because uh, a lot of the 73, 74 shows end up being Kid Candelario. You've got like more Bettys in the late 70s. You got Owsley earlier in the 70s. So uh, it was Rex's turn to run the tape recorder. And you don't hear a lot about Rex tapes. <laughs> People don't say, oh, this is a rich Rex Jackson soundboard. I don't think recording was his primary responsibility with the dead. But the, these sound pretty good. At, and where they sound less than pristine, I think actually favors the type of music that is on this particular Dick's Fix. It sounds a little more ragged and rough around the edges, and that's just kind of where the dead were at that time, too. Yeah, you know, we've talked about this uh, in prior episodes where there are these periods for the dead, and they often come in, like, late summer, early fall, like August, September, where you feel like they are pointing toward the next year. They're transitioning a little bit, and you can hear, I think, the seeds of 72, one of the great years in Grateful Dead history, you can hear a bit of that here uh, in terms of just the style of playing. Obviously, Keith's not in and Don is not in, so that's a big hole here. Um, but the style of playing, some of the songs that are going to be become a big part of the Dead set list in 72 to 74, they're pretty young at this point. And Actually, I think, as you said, like they're, they're kind of more interesting for that. You know, like mm-hmm. I could think of a couple songs that we've maybe heard a lot, but you really kind of hear them like an, in an embryonic state here. It, it's kind of cool to hear it like in a more like a young and rowdy type format. Right. Yeah. We, we talked about this last episode when we were back in 77. And I was, you know, talking about how the Dick's Picks they were kind of like filling in the timeline of Grateful Dead history. Like, here's what they sounded like in this year. Here's what they sounded like in that year. And by Dick's Picks 34, we're really splitting hairs on 77, where it's like, here's what they sounded like in October versus September and December. Mm. And they don't sound all that different. But I do think uh, this volume definitely fills a hole that the Dick's Picks series hadn't really gotten to yet. And I'm... I have a few theories on why that is, and we'll talk about it as we go through the show, but 71 is a really fascinating year, and there is, like, a live album. There's a Skull and Roses live album from 71, so you already get, like, if if people wanted a taste of what 71 Dead sounded like, it had been out for, you know, 40 years at this point. Uh, but, yeah, this is, like, capturing an era of the dead where it almost feels like there's an alternate timeline that could have shot off in a totally different direction from where they did actually go in 72. And like, you're not, you're not a comic book guy. We've talked about this before, but do you know what, what if comics are? I can ascertain what it would be from the title. <laughs> okay, what well, you're saying that yeah. it's like an alternate universe type, type deal. Exactly. The, what if comics were like Marvel comics that were like, what if, uh, you know, instead of Peter Parker, the radioactive spider had bit Aunt May what would happen from then? And then they would tell a story about, you know, this alternate universe. So this to me, and we can circle back to this as we're going through the show, but this to me is like, what if the Grateful Dead had decided in 1971 after they went through some personnel changes to just become basically like a country rock band? 
like this is what if they had gone in this direction and this really captures an era of the dead where it's like maybe they didn't become maybe they left the whole jamming thing behind maybe they went for like a more straightforward country blues sound uh and stuck with it and what band would they become if they had stayed in that lane instead of steering back out of it in 72 73 74 so i'm 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 curious as to what your answer is and i have an answer that will make everybody angry that i'm going to say for the end of the the episode <laughs> well can't wait to be angry here uh <laughs> but before we get to that though i just wanted to give a little bit of context or background on the cd proper because you know i am the one out of the two of us who actually collects the physical cds and dick's picks 35 was like the hardest one to track down it's like the last <laughs> one i bought because if you go on discogs or ebay and i haven't bought Dick's picks for a while now because I already have them. But like when I was searching, you could find most Dick's picks for between thirty to fifty dollars, and there were a few that were really common that were less than that, and then there were a few that were way more than that. And Dick's picks thirty five was one of them. And for the longest time, like you couldn't find this for like less than two hundred fifty dollars. It was just really hard to track down. Wow. And then at some point, I got lucky and I finally found a copy that was like about fifty bucks. So then I. I I laid it down so I could have the complete set. And a cool thing about the CD is that there actually are some fairly extensive liner notes compared to other Dick's Picks. Like a lot of Dick's Picks might have the track listing on the inside and some photos. This actually has like a little, has like a short essay here. And I'm just looking to see who wrote this. Dennis McNally wrote the essay. So that's pretty cool. One thing that's really interesting is that they show some newspaper clippings of reviews of these shows, and a lot of them are negative. <laughs> and I just want to read some of these headlines here. One headline, this is from the Chicago Daily News. Grateful Dead, limp to finish. That's according to the Chicago Daily News. Then there's another one. I don't know what paper this is from. It says, bad vibes, mute, Grateful Dead. <laughs> and then this is my favorite headline. Grateful Dead dies in three-hour show. And, <laughs> that's like a good. That's not even a pun. Uh, it's, <laughs> like, it's sort of, yeah, it's sort of like a poor man's New York Post type headline. Uh, right. But you know, you you they don't show the entire articles. You can read a little bit of it, and from what I could tell, you know, the bad vibes meet Grateful Dead. I don't know what show this was, but it. Wait, no, it's uh, no. This was in Chicago actually, because it says in the yeah. I think those are all from like the auditorium show in late august the the bad vibes article it, it alludes to i think people in the audience being a little negative yeah. like there was well, just bad vibes in the audience bob does uh chastise the audience uh during that show so yeah we were talking sense. we were talking about that and like you know uh, uh, the, like those the 76 77 it seemed like there was a lot of rambunctious characters around that time it seems like they were also in chicago in 71 one of the reviews complains about the intermission saying this, this show was finally starting to get going. And then they had a 20 minute break. which I thought was an interesting complaint. Maybe not someone that saw the dead all that much. Yeah, uh, but about I don't know. Break. That's rude. Yeah. yeah. Uh, I think Chicago, I love Chicago. I've lived in Chicago most of my life, not the headiest town. So the, you know, the, the grateful dead, played here a lot and played some great shows here but i would imagine certainly the types of people who are music critics for the chicago newspapers in 1971 
they were not buying what the Grateful Dead was selling. <laughs> oh, yeah. So I just like that they included those in the Dick's Picks, though, like rather than just, you know, glowing reviews of these shows. They're like, yeah, the, the show had bad vibes. <laughs> I like that. Yeah, yeah. The, you know, you got these blue-collar Chicago journos smoking right. cigs, writing for the meat packers, you know, out there. <laughs> Sure. Eating their sausages, they don't want to. They don't care about this hippie shit. They're pretty angry about it. So you got right. to like uh, placate those people. Um, yeah, let's talk about seventy one. I mean, like you said, this is our second time in seventy one in the Dick's Pick series, and it really feels like a transitional year for yeah. the dead. Even the lineup is weird. Like you're coming out of you know obviously the sixties and like the Live Dead era and uh, really heavy psychedelic stuff, but like we you have. Obviously, American Beauty and Workman's Dead that come out at the turn of the decade there, but it doesn't seem like the dead are, have really become the dead of the 70s until like 72 or so. Like that feels like classic dead of that time. And maybe in 71, they were still in the process of moving from that psychedelic period to like more of like the Americana band that became in the 70s. And you can also see it like in the songs that they were starting to produce around this time. And, you know, we alluded to this earlier, but like, the set list was, I think, in, maybe in the process of starting to turn over. You mentioned all the covers that were being played. I mean, 72 ends up being like a real sort of bountiful feast of of songs that get dumped into the sets. But we haven't quite reached that point yet. No, it's, uh, it's interesting. A lot of the 72 material, a lot of the Europe 72 songs, debuted in 71. And we're going to hear them in really early states in this particular set. So it, it just feels like 71... Classic transitional year for the dead. That's what everybody describes it as. And it's kind of interesting just how, like, you almost had the studio songwriting dead and the live performance dead, sort of pushing in opposite directions in a way is what makes 71 such a weird year. Because like you said, they just came off American Beauty and Working Man's Dead, two incredible albums full of amazing songs. Uh, Both come out in 1970. They have some, like, you know, commercial acclaim, uh, you know, for the first time. Uh, but they, it's like they struggled a little bit with how to translate that back to the stage. And, you know, we heard, like, the Harper College show, so, like, fall 1970, where they tried the acoustic set and the electric set. For whatever reason, they didn't stick with that, even though it works great at that show. Uh, so now it's kind of like, how do we incorporate all the more country, blues, Americana material into our show? Does it sit well next to the old psychedelic stuff that everybody wants? I mean, this is, we have one show here where everybody's yelling for St. Stephen and Jerry sort of smacks down the fans who want the old stuff, uh, even though they end up playing it anyway. Uh, And yeah, and then they've got all these personnel changes. So TC leaves in early 1970, leaving Pigpen as the only keyboard player uh, for, you know, two years, basically. Uh, and then in early 71, Mickey up and leaves right in the middle of a run <laughs> at the Capitol Theater. He leaves in February. Uh, and so then you're down to the quintet dead. So it's the only time you've had a five-piece dead, basically, uh, in you know the entire 30 years. There's probably a few odd shows early on where it was just five. But you really have the core five here. And it's just like, especially coming off a 77 show, it's such a sparse sound. And I thought it was a very mellow Dick's Picks, a very mellow sound. Uh, you had a slightly different reaction to it, though. But it, to me, it just feels like this is as stripped down as the dead get uh, at any point in their history. 
Yeah, I mean, I think in our outline you said you thought it was like the mellowest Dix picks, and I, I, I pushed back against that a little bit just because I think of Dix picks eight. You have a, an acoustic set. I know the second set is electric and not as mellow, but it's like it doesn't get as mellow as like Dix picks eight does at its mellowest. I understand what you mean. I think one reason I push back against the metal thing a little bit is is because of the presence of, of Pigpen. And I just feel like Pigpen um, is probably the member of the dead who's uh, who I've changed my mind about the most during the course of this <laughs> series because I, I feel like at the beginning, like I always appreciated Pigpen visually. Like I loved how he looked as like this hell's angel looking dude, like obviously like the toughest guy in the band. I don't, although I don't think he was that in real life, but that's like the image that he projected as like this bluesy showman, uh, that, uh, you know, would bring the house down every night doing, you know, turn on your love light and, uh, you know, really being kind of like more of a front man than like Jerry or Bob was at that time. Um, but like what he brings to the table musically was something I feel like I didn't quite appreciate at the beginning. And like now, you know, revisiting the pig pen era with dick's picks 35 it just brings home how much i like his organ playing and even like you know like the stabs at songwriting that he was taking at the end of his life you know one cool thing about this album that i like is that you hear some pig pen songs that like are not very common in the dead canon not just dick's picks but just in general and i dug his songs and like i liked hearing that from Pigpen, it was an interesting energy that he was bringing to the show, bringing to this record. Uh, so yeah, I mean, Pigpen is like really one of my favorite parts of Dick's Picks 35, like for sure. Right. And I don't think he's mellow. I, he just has like a <laughs> snarling quality to him Yeah. that it, it's different than when Bob does blues. Mm-hmm. Like when Pigpen does it, there is like kind of like a cool, menacing, tough guy aspect to it that I really respond to. That Absolutely. the dead lost after he died, and yeah. like when the dead did blues with Pigpen, I just think it's a lot better than mm-hmm. after he left. Like there's just yeah, I don't want to say the word authenticity, but just the spirit that he brings to it. It's really cool and it's very specific to when he was in the band. Yeah, and that's I think two sort of interesting storylines here. One is that Pigpen, in a five-piece Grateful Dead lineup, Pigpen has a lot of responsibilities. And even in, like, the earlier Grateful Dead in, like, the late 60s, early 70s, he could kind of float on and off the stage a little bit, I think. Like, when they did a big Dark Star, he would play some, like, weird percussion instrument, but he could kind of go have a drink and smoke a cigarette and come back in half an hour and be totally fine. Uh, But he has to play on every song here. He has to do something on every song, so it's kind of interesting to hear how he slots in. Uh, And then we're getting sort of an early, you know, listen to Bill being on his own. So after this, like, crazy two-drummer sound they had in the late 60s and early 70s, we get, like, the early, early one-drummer dead. Um, And, of course, we've talked again and again about how we're huge fans of one-drummer dead. But I do think that he, you know, is still figuring some things out in this era, and I find it really fascinating to hear, you know, Bill, you know, sometimes maybe he overplays a little bit. Sometimes he is like, you know, as I think you said in the outline, swinging much harder than they would have been able to do, certainly with Mickey on board. So it really adds an interesting characteristic to this show to hear, you know, Bill in this sort of sensitive spot as well. For me, no such thing as Bill overplaying when he's by himself. I love <laughs> Bill being all over the kit yeah. by himself. I think it's rad. Um Let's talk about the venues we're going to be visiting 
on Dick's Picks 35. Uh, we'll start with Golden Hall in San Diego. Great yeah. name, by the way. I haven't heard of that one. Taking the Golden Road to Golden <laughs> Hall. Uh, it's a 3,200-seat indoor arena in San Diego, built in 64, so relatively new uh, venue when this show took place. Uh, a lot of uh, big names have played this venue over the years. Uh, Bob Dylan played there, and uh, I think he played there twice in his 79 to 80 era, doing you know the Christian rock thing. There's a version of What Can I Do For You from the 79 show that's on the Bootleg Series box set. Uh, devoted to the Christian era. Um, this was something that we were both excited about. Pink Floyd played Golden Hall two months after the dead. Their show was in October 71. You can actually find a recording of their show on YouTube, and it's a pretty awesome show. Yeah, yeah. I mean, it's um, it, it's interesting, especially given that the dead were jamming less at this time it's interesting to hear floyd come two months later and jam a lot more than the grateful dead they sound more like late 60s dead than the dead do <laughs> in 1971 um the, the it raises the question uh where do you spend your hard-earned uh four dollars in 1971 if you could only go to the dead or floyd at golden hall so this was you know metal era pink floyd so they were really doing, I mean, I think um, they do Echoes. I'm, I'm sure they do Echoes at this show. They do Adam Hard Mother. They do Adam, actually, was this before Metal came out then? Because like, this would have been, uh, so so Metal came out later that month. So this was like right in the sweet spot. Like, I guess they're doing more of like the Umagama set, really. Mm-hmm. Like what you hear on the live album of of Omagama, like a lot of songs from like that era and i don't know which one would i rather see i mean it's weird you mentioned how floyd was jamming a lot at this time and it's kind of like the end of them jamming a lot because once they start doing like the dark side of the moon period right you know the shows become much more structured and then they become like this stadium rock band, always having some sort of like conceptual thing going on, um, which I love. I love that era too. So I don't. I'm gonna punt on this one. I've, <laughs> are, are, are you gonna say Pink Floyd for this? I'm gonna. I'm gonna say if I was uh, holding some good drugs in 1971, I would probably go to Floyd instead of the Dead. Now, if I had bad drugs, I would probably go to the Dead instead of Floyd because. The uh, Floyd show opens with Careful With That Axe Eugene, and Roger Waters screaming in Careful With That Axe Eugene would have sent me right out of the building <laughs> if I was on anything that I couldn't handle. Uh, the Floyd show is way darker than the Grateful Dead show. Um, but it's just like, it's interesting that they kind of like, this is a, it's a transitional period for both, and then they kind of like crisscrossed in what other ways. Like, the Dead went deeper into spacey cosmic. Uh, improvisation and uh, you know the uh, Floyd kind of you know reined it in a little bit and became more of more theatrical I guess is one way to put it so yeah both excellent recordings from this venue though and worth comparing I'll say like if I'm going by myself I'll go to Floyd if I'm going with a group of people I'll go to the dead because I think the dead show from like a party angle would be more fun but if you're just by yourself and you want to have like the spiritual, you know, 
mind meld and exploding of your consciousness type thing, then maybe you go to see Pink Floyd. So yeah, that, that's how I'll answer that question. Uh, let's talk about the Auditorium Theater. You should talk about this one because you have more experience with this venue. I just want to say that I love the name of this uh, venue, like <laughs> Auditorium Theater. It's like calling it, like, like if you had a stadium and you called it Arena Stadium, right. or if you had a club, like we'll just call it Saloon Club, you know? It's like <laughs> two, uh, you know, kind of synonyms for the same thing. Yeah. But, you know, it's like the most generic name. It's, I don't know why, why it's named that. I mean, it's like too big to be a theater almost. And, too small to be an auditorium, so maybe they just decided to to name it both. But was there like anyway. a local politician named George Auditorium, and like <laughs> so they just named it after him? It's not a that's not an Irish enough name to be a Chicago politician. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Uh, no, the Auditorium Theater, a, a, a venue gem of Chicago that I've been to, you know, probably a couple dozen times in my life. It is a beautiful theater. Designed by Dankmar Adler and Louis Sullivan, two greats of Chicago architecture. Uh, you know, people always love to say theaters are opulent inside, and this is like the perfect def- dictionary definition of an opulent theater. It's just full of like, like you know, gold and lights and intricate like ceiling work and all sorts of like fancy architectural like touches all over the place. It sounds great. It's very large. Uh, I think it holds like 5,000, I want to say. I forgot to look this up, of course. But yeah, I used to go see it all the time. Um, it holds nearly 4,000, so I was close. Um, I used to go there all the time as a kid with my parents because uh, when touring Broadway productions came through Chicago, they would play at the auditorium for several months. So I saw like Phantom of the Opera there. I saw Les Miserables there. I saw that sort of thing. I saw the Broadway production of Tommy there uh, to circle back to a couple episodes uh but then i've seen a bunch of people there usually it is like you know classic rock giants that come through the auditorium theater so i saw neil play there a couple times solo i saw dylan play there sometime in the 2000s Uh, i've seen woco there we were supposed to see woco there uh on the for the yankee hotel foxtrot anniversary tour but we got coveted out uh david byrne i saw there before he uh got stuck at broadway I saw Tom Waits there. I take my wife there to see modern dance performances now and again. Uh, it's just a beautiful theater, and I would absolutely have loved to see the Grateful Dead there. It would have been so great. Um, the Dead played there 10 times. They played there four times in 71, so we get one of the four shows. Oddly enough, they played there in August and October, so they had two two-night runs there within mm. two months, which is a strange itinerary. Uh, but they mostly played it in 76 and 77, and uh, there is a photograph of Jerry Garcia from one of those 77 shows uh, that is up by the men's room in the basement of the auditorium. So I sent Steve the picture I took of that photo. Yes. Uh, just yeah, to confirm look- that it is there. <laughs> he's looking good. Yeah, I've never been to the auditorium theater. Like Rob said, I was supposed to go see Wilco there at the Yankee Hotel Foxtrot 20th anniversary show. But I got COVID, so I couldn't go. Very sad about that. I thought for a second that I had seen Levon Helm there, but I saw him at the Chicago Theater. Yeah. So very, not the Auditorium the, Theater. Those always get confused for each other. I even had to like remember if I had seen <laughs> some of these people at the Auditorium or the Chicago Theater. Very similar, similar places, but I think the Auditorium's a little better. Um, probably the most famous concert at the Auditorium, by the way, is the first Crosby, Stills, Nash & Young show. They famously only played one show before they played at Woodstock, and it was at Chicago at the Auditorium Theater with uh, Joni Mitchell opening. So that would have been another 
awesome show to see there. But yeah, real it, nice place. Did Graham Nash play Chicago at that Chicago show? I wonder. I don't know if that song was written yet. I don't think he had written it yet, right? I don't know. I don't know. We can't change the world. <laughs> um, that's my Graham Nash impression. Uh, let's talk about the Hollywood Palladium, very famous uh, venue on Sunset Boulevard in California, built in 1940. Uh, it opened on Halloween that year with a dance featuring Tommy Dorsey and his orchestra with band vocalist Frank Sinatra. So, you know, just to give you an idea of the range of show business that has taken place at this place. Uh there was this uh, event in 69 that I'd heard about from other places called Pop Expo 69. It was a teenage fair, and uh, it was at the Hollywood Palladium. And I think it was like among like the first rock performances there. And Jimi Hendrix played there, and the MC5 played there. I'm actually uh, listening to the audiobook of a memoir by Steve Lukather, who's a famous L.A. session musician. He right. uh, was later in the band Toto. Very yeah. entertaining book, by the way. The Gospel According to Luke. I recommend it. Very funny. Uh, but he played there when he was like, uh, I think, 11 years old. Like he was playing in bands when he was really, really young. Like as a guitar virtuoso. Um, there were a bunch of like, I think, punk rock shows and metal shows and rap shows at the Palladium in the 80s and 90s. Uh some of the famous shows from that era include uh, Richard Pryor did a couple shows there that were filmed for the concert film Richard Pryor live on the Sunset Strip. And I wonder if that's the one where he's wearing the red suit. Hmm. I don't know if that's the one that's like the coolest Richard Pryor I think I ever looked in the movie. <laughs> uh, there's also a live album Keith Richards performed at uh, that he recorded at the Palladium uh, with the expensive winos live at the Hollywood Palladium. Uh, in December of 1988, that's a great record. Uh, it fell into disrepair for a while. I, there was a show by Marky Mark and the Funky Bunch there uh, yeah. in 1993 that like ended in a huge brawl, and I think it like <clears throat> prevented shows from happening there for a wow, while. The Marky so, like, Mark riots of 1993. I wasn't aware. Yeah, like it's the ultimate of the early 90s, if you will, with, with Marky Mark. <laughs> But they reopened in 2007, uh, and guess what? Now operated by Live Nation. Uh, so, you know, just to go back to our uh, tuning up banter. Uh, so yeah, so the, you know, they still have shows now. But yeah, they again from Sinatra to Live Nation, like this venue really kind of covers the spectrum of show business over the course of 70 odd years. The other, I think it's interesting that the show has two Southern California dates on it because i always felt like the dead were a little combative when they went to southern california right you gotta have like the intrastate rivalry so i wonder if these shows were a little more uh heated than their typical home turf shows i mean they lived in la very briefly i guess early on in dead history but yeah it's a san diego and los angeles they they don't feel like grateful dead towns uh in the same way that of course you know san francisco or even you know like the northeast uh, feel like so out of, out of their uh, comfort zone just ever so slightly on this set. Maybe uh, Henley and Fry were on the periphery, ooh, ooh. picking yeah. up picking up some picking up on some women. Maybe uh, you know doing a little tequila and blow there on the Sunset Strip, yeah. waiting for their careers to take off. All those L.A. musicians, maybe a little Jackson Brown. They're wearing their denim shirts, leaning up against the wall, just shaking their head. Mm -hmm. 
There's no, there's no songs here, man. This isn't, <laughs> this isn't slick, man. Right. Where's the musicianship, man? This is way too crazy for us. Could see it happening. Talk about what's happening in pop culture in August of 71. Number one song in America, How Do You Mend a Broken Heart by the Bee Gees. Yeah. And look, we had to cover this whole month. We normally have to just pick one week. Uh, But this song was number one for the entirety of August of 71. Man. The Bee Gees. Man, uh, you know, I think we're, we're still figuring out, you know, what we do after the 36. Maybe we need to do uh, a Bee Gees slash All in the Family hybrid oh, podcast. <laughs> like the people who had the biggest uh, 70s of all. Uh, oh, yeah. They're just like constantly around. I feel like, I mean, we were, what, just a week before Sarah Night Fever came out last episode? Yeah, so that's true. They, yeah. They had, they had legs more than the dead even. Fascinating career, man. Fascinating career for the Bee Gees. Uh, other big songs from this month. Indian Reservation by the Raiders. Paul Revere apparently was gone by this point. They're just the Raiders. <laughs> the Revere-less Raiders, yeah. Uh, James Taylor, You've Got a Friend. Gene Knight's Mr. Big Stuff. Who do you think you are, Mr. Yeah. Big Stuff? I could hear Woo. Big Ben singing that. Oh, yeah, that'd be good stuff. And Tommy James, Dragging the Line. Tommy James, a 60s bubblegum kind of carryover at this point. Yeah, interesting. There's a lot of that, like... Transitional year for everybody, I think. This, you can't really, this group of songs, you can't really find a thread <laughs> through all of these, right? It's just kind of like the kitchen sink of music in 1971. I mean, like, I think James Taylor is pointing ahead. You know, he seems like a 70s artist, and Gene Knight, you know, that kind of funky soul. Those two kind of feel more 70s. But yeah, the rest feel like 60s leftovers. Yeah, yeah. A bit. Uh, number one album, and this is this was another one that was just number one forever from mid June to the end of September. Tapestry by yeah. Carol King. And uh, speaking of James Taylor, you know her and Carol King, part of the singer songwriter movement of the early seventies. That's going to be a big deal around this time. Yeah, I guess that's uh, that's the crew that is making fun of the dead, right? That's, Carol and James are also hanging out there saying Jackson you Brown run this stuff. China Cat Sunflower, what is this about? Right. <laughs> yeah, J.D. Souther just showed up at the Palladium. He's shaking his head, too. They're all yeah. laughing. Jackson Brown is like, let's get out of here. Let's let's go to uh, the Troubadour and see what Linda Ronstadt's doing. It's <laughs> <laughs> my fan fiction for uh, what's going on. Maybe David Geffen rolls oh, up sure. yeah. in a limousine. He's going to whisk him away to the Troub, hang out. While the dead are going to their second set, um, uh, just to for context, because again, Tapestry was number one for so long. 
uh, it took over in the number one slot in mid June from Sticky Fingers by the Rolling Stones, and yeah. it was re- it was replaced by Rod Stewart's Every Picture Tells a Story. So we talked about Rod Stewart in our second episode. Or Dick's Picks too. Have you investigated any Rod since then? Have you, have you dug <laughs> have into I come Rod? around on Rod Stewart? No, uh, no. Oh man, <laughs> not even. Oh man, uh, Rod Stewart, the faces, early seventies. I'll, I'll put the faces on every once in a while. I got to admit, the uh, faces play on this record. They're all on this record. It's just like a folky version of the faces. Is it okay? Absolutely, it's a great record. Every picture yes. tells a story. Masterpiece. Awesome record. I think Rod. From the late '60s to the mid '70s, if you like right. the faces, you like Rod Stewart. It's just the fo- like he was a folkier person on his own. That was like the thing about his solo career. So, I'm telling you, good stuff. Uh, number one film in America, The Omega Man, with Charlton Heston. Have you seen this movie? I have. Yes. Uh, yeah, it's okay. <laughs> it's like uh, you know uh, Charlton Heston fighting vampires in uh, post-apocalyptic. Yeah. America, uh, they remade it with uh, Will Smith, right? Uh, yeah, it's based on the Richard Matheson book, I Am Legend. Right. And and the Will Smith movie is called I Am Legend. That's a great book, by the way. I remember reading yeah. that as a teenager and loving it. Um, it's an extremely mov- uh, right-wing movie. In fact, I think, if I remember right, there's a scene where he's watching the Woodstock movie in an abandoned theater and like laughing at it as though, you know... Laughing at the uh, the arrogance of the soft late sixties generation that didn't know that vampires are about to take over the country. Oh <laughs> uh, well, <laughs> you know, if that did happen, and you were the last man on earth, would stock the movie? <laughs> it probably would be pretty funny at that point. <laughs> in that scenario, um, another movie that came around around this time that is like a lesser known movie, cult movie, but I like it quite a bit. It's called The Hired Hand. It's a Peter Fonda movie, uh, like a hippie western. Right. And uh, Warren Oates is in it. So can I interest you in a 70s movie with Peter Fonda and Warren Oates where it's a hippie western? I think it can interest you in that. That sounds great to me. I think I've never seen the movie, but I have heard the soundtrack, uh, oddly enough, because it's by uh, Bruce Langhorn did the yes. music for that. So, yeah. The I, great I, Bruce I, Langhorn. Right. And, you know, Langhorne, I mean, obviously he was associated with Dylan going back to the mid-60s. He's playing a lot on uh, Bring It All Back Home, like the second side. But he was also a big part of the Pat Garrett and Billy the Kid soundtrack that Dylan did. Right. And there's some similarities there with The Hired Hand. Definitely see that dreamy 70s hippie Americana vibe going on. So very cool. Uh, number one shows in America, number five, Gunsmoke, number four, Ironside, number three, Here's Lucy, number two, The Flip Wilson Show, and number one, Marcus Welby, MD. I have seen, well, I've seen a little bit of Gunsmoke. I haven't seen any of these other shows. Right. Yeah. I had to look up Ironside because I thought that would be a Western too, but apparently it's Raymond Burr as a paralyzed police detective. In yes. San Francisco. Uh, yeah. Sure, naturally. Uh, yeah. <laughs> yeah, that's that that could be a show back then. You yeah, put, yeah. Raymond Burr in a wheelchair and have him solve crimes in San Francisco. For like eight seasons, yeah. yeah. Uh, I was going to make uh, a comment that 
you know, the dead being sort of at their countryest <laughs> on this episode was uh, in line with the fact that Gunsmoke was still a top five TV show. Um, but yeah, I guess the rest of these are not Westerns. Marcus Welby isn't like a uh, frontier doctor, right? He's just a, a doctor. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I think that's sort of like a Waltons type show, just like a small mm-hmm. town, you know, innocent type show. Uh, yeah, I mean, early 70s, I mean, you definitely had, uh, you know, a lot of the sort of like revisionist Westerns around that time. So, you know, Sam Peckinpah making only mm-hmm. Westerns. Uh, he made The Ballad of Cable Hogue in 1970, which is a great movie. Obviously, The Wild Bunch the year before that. And then you get Pat Garrett and the Billy the Kid in 73. Clint Eastwood's making movies around this time. High Plains Drifter. Have you sure. seen High Plains Drifter? I have, it's a yeah. kick-ass flick. That's awesome. Just whipping people as a ghost. <laughs> He's a ghost who whips people. It's great. Uh, we should mention, too, like we talk about other things happening around the time of the show. The concert for Bangladesh was like August 1st. Yeah. And a big deal that the concert was. There wasn't really that. That was kind of like the first big charity concert. Yeah, I, I think so. I can't think of an earlier one, and it really, you know, set the mold for like Live Aid and all the other stuff that went on. Um, and I think was the first sort of live Beatles reunion after they broke up, because Ringo well, yeah, shows up. Yeah, it's like Harrison and, and Ringo. Yeah, and they hadn't performed certainly together. I don't know if like Ringo had done any live stuff, but I don't think George Harrison had toured yet. Mm. So they were together. John Lennon did not show up, even though he was in New York. But like Dylan was there. Dylan had not played live since '66, mm. so that was a big deal. Like all these '60s Clapton's people there and out. real sick, right? Isn't Clapton like in the middle of one of his many addictions? Yeah, uh, yeah, yeah, he's there. Robbie Shankar's there. You got like oh, the dudes from Badfinger there. Yeah. <laughs> Pretty cool show. Forty thousand people. I think they did two shows at Madison Square Garden. 20,000 each. So that was a pretty big deal. So that's happening while the dead are doing their thing here in August of, of 71. Are we ready to go to 71, man? I think we are. Should we get there? I think there? we've uh we we've we've done all the prep. Let's uh let's get into some dead shows here. Hey everyone, this is Tuck from Fit for a King, an off-road minivan. Every week I bring you fun interviews alongside your favorite metalcore entertainers with my new podcast, Get Tucked. Join me every Monday with bands like Counterparts, Crystal Lake, like Mods to Flames, and many more. We play unsigned and undiscovered bands, deep dive into each artist's history, and of course provide the greatest breakdowns in current metalcore. Tune in to Get Tucked every Monday, out now through Sound Talent Media. What is a city without its music? The legacy of the New York Philharmonic is incredible. Nearly two centuries of history. That's a lot of music and a lot of stories. I was sitting on stage for the very first time thinking, I can't quite believe this is happening. Join me, Jamie Bernstein, as we explore the history of the New York Philharmonic. It's the NY Phil story made in New York, a podcast about a city, its people, and their orchestra. Listen wherever you get podcasts. (laughs) 
All right, so here we are, Dick's Picks 35, August of 71, various places that we're visiting, three different right, but, places. But we start off with a complete show from San Diego, August 7th. We're at Golden Hall. Yep. And uh, at the earlier in this episode, you very enticingly referenced some grand theory you have about, <laughs> it's like sliding doors theory about the dead with country right. rock and... It's going to make people angry and gnashing of teeth and all of all such things. Uh, do you want to talk about that yet? or Because I feel like if you're going to talk about country rock, this first disc is like pretty damn country rock. Yeah. And I, actually, I forgot to mention it earlier, but I found like a Jerry quote about Skull and Roses around the time that it came out. Jerry really likes Skull and Roses. I don't really like Skull and Roses that much. It sounds very fakey to me. Um, and in some ways, I feel like this Dick's Picks is like a a more honest portrayal of what they were doing at this time. But just Jerry's quote about Skull and Roses is, uh, he said, it's the prototype Grateful Dead, a good example of what the Grateful Dead really is. People can see we're like a regular shoot 'em up saloon band. So I think that really tracks with, especially this disc and disc three is kind of similar to this in that it's a lot of covers. It's a lot of country music. A lot of blues music, not a lot of jamming at all, really, on this disc. I mean, there's, like, the only song over 10 minutes is Truckin', uh, and that barely gets there. Uh, this is, I think, you know, one potential future for the dead at this point was just to be, like, a country blues band. And I wonder if, you know, Pigpen getting sick kind of forced the issue and pushed them back into more jazzy improvisational sounds, but... I wonder if there was like an era here where they were just totally content being sort of like, uh, you know, like Jerry said, a saloon band, sort of like your like country bar band. <laughs> and and if if that was what they wanted to do, this is like this disc especially is a, what they would have sounded like, I think, if they had kept going this way. Yeah, I think that what we're hearing is the dead playing to the personnel that they have at the moment, you know, they mm-hmm. weren't going to be super exploratory with pig pen being, I mean, he's the keyboardist technically, but he's really just playing organ, I think. And uh, along with singing. So as we said earlier, you know, with the houseboat thing, they were in the process of bringing Keith into the band at some point around this time. So once Keith joined, I think that was going to be a catalyst for them going in a more adventurous direction but like at this moment in time with like who they had on stage it just makes sense for them to lean in this direction yeah i want to go back to what you were saying about skull and roses and it's interesting because i had better memories of that record than i think i realized like after looking at it and listening to it a bit because i mean my main thing with it isn't that it sounds contrived it's just that there's so many covers on it you know there, there there are some classics on that record that you know debuted on album on skull and roses including bertha and playing in the band those you know being through the big ones war fred is on that record i think was that the first time the other one was on a record uh a live version yeah a live version was on yeah exactly i know the studio version's on uh the self-titled it's on self-titled debut right uh steve of course it is on anthem of the sun Okay, well, look, you'd think after 35 episodes I wouldn't know a goddamn thing about this band, but apparently I don't. Uh, but, 
yeah, I mean, you know, because we also have like Mama Tried on that record, and me and Bobby McGee, and I don't know right. songs that I don't really Johnny Be Good need. Yeah, Johnny B. Goods on that record. A lot of stuff that I don't necessarily even want to hear on a Dick's Picks, much less like a proper Grateful Dead album. <laughs> uh, but yeah, you know, like on this first disc, again, I'll go back to what I was saying earlier. I just really appreciate the presence of Pigpen. And maybe that's me responding to the novelty of going back to this era after not hearing Pigpen for a while. But. You know, like Mr. Charlie, for instance, I, I've always been a fan of that song. I love hearing that song. Hard to Handle, which is a Dick's Picks debut, I believe, right? Yes. Uh, two of the Pig Pen songs here are, are Dick's Picks debuts. Uh, Hard to Handle and then Big Boss Man is the other Pig Pen song on this disc. Not to pick on Bobby Blues, because I do like some Bobby Blues, but I, I feel like songs like that have a much different flavor to them when Bobby is singing them versus when... Pigpen is singing them. Just the swagger that that Pigpen has, I think it just works better. And there's something about how the Dead play with Pigpen in the band, where it goes back to that saloon comment that Jerry was saying. Saloon is a word that you know it, it conjures images of like a Wild West type thing, but to me it is more of like a blues bar or like a you know like that bar that the Blues Brothers played in where they're behind Chicken Wire, you know, like yeah. just like a like a down home juke joint kind of scary place right and i like that vibe and i think that's what i respond to on the first disc yeah the dead are in this era are playing both kinds of music country and western uh, <laughs> right and to your point about the covers i mean half of this disc is covers six out of 12 songs so it's like a weird paradox that you know this is an era where the grateful dead were i think unquestionably writing their very best songs. I mean, between American Beauty and Working Man's Dead and then the 71 crop of songs, which includes Bertha, Loser, Warfrat, Playing in the Band, Deal, Birdsong, Sugary, Brown-Eyed Women. All those songs are on the table at this point. Uh, we're going to hear, I think, maybe the first Brown-Eyed Woman later in this disc, or later in this set. Uh, but yeah, it's just so funny to me that they decided to play a whole ton of covers <laughs> at the same time as they were writing all these great songs. But I just, it just feels like they're really leaning into this country blues sound. Uh, and it, it's, a, it's a version of the dead that actually works really well, I think. I wouldn't want them to have been this for 30 years, I guess. I'm glad they didn't take this sliding doors alternate timeline path but so many of these songs they're pretty chill i think in the song and then you get these like really fiery jerry solos in the middle so sort of like a jerry's hot licks in the middle of uh you know el paso or something which is much slower than they would play it in this later bobby cowboy medley era um yeah it's it's cool it's like and as i mentioned in the last episode I'm in kind of like a first set dead mood lately versus a second set dead mood. So I'm I'm more responsive to this uh, era of the dead than I would be in some other times in my, my dead journey, I guess. Uh, yeah. I like, so I like this desk. Yeah. You know, again, I think what's interesting about this show is that, like you said, there's all these pieces out there that are really great that, you know, in terms of songs and material that they have, but they haven't quite, pieced it together in the way that we know as like an iconic Grateful Dead show. So like, you know, you have a song like Bertha, for instance, which is, you know, one of the relatively new songs that that song debuted in February of 71 and uh, later appeared on the Skull and Roses record. 
you know, I think of that as like a as a set opening song. Like you hear Bertha, it's such a feel good number. You want to hear that first, but here it's tucked in the middle. You know, which is kind of like a weird place to be putting it. You know, it feels like a little buried almost. And then uh, you also have like uh, Promised Land, also kind of in the middle, like another song that you would think this is going to bring people up. You know, instead they're opening with like Big Real World Blues and El Paso, like two okay songs. But like, I just feel like they don't quite have the dynamics nailed down yet. And, you know, maybe at this point in our journey, we can appreciate that because we've seen so many standard Grateful Dead sets that if they're doing a set that is a little off kilter uh, in terms of like the song structure, even if it's not as effective as like the more formulaic thing, it is maybe more interesting to us because yeah. we're just looking for novelty at this point. This does feel a little bit like uh, an era where the dead were on shuffle. <laughs> like there's not really the classic Grateful Dead set structure, especially without like a big jam to sort of anchor your second set. You know, the sort of big jam in the middle or like a drum space that you get much later you know, leading into a Jerry ballad. Like there's none of that in this show. It's just kind of like, here's 24 songs <laughs> and they're all really good, uh, but they're kind of played in a sort of random order. And every so often big pen shows up. Um, I do want to bring up before we leave this disc that the hard to handle is like pretty awesome. Maybe the best song on this first disc, uh, even though it is, you know, a relatively tight eight and a half minutes. Uh, it has a pretty significant jam tacked on to the end of it. Um, and I'm curious, uh, because I think like a lot of people our age, I first heard hard to handle as a black crows cover song in the nineties, had no idea that it was a, uh, Otis Redding song originally (laughs) as a, as a dumb young teenager in suburbia. Uh, so I'm that to me, the black crows version is kind of like the, 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 the song that is imprinted on my mind that I compare this to. And it's always like the pig pen version has always been a little weird to me because it sounds more like the Otis Redding version that I'm less familiar with. Uh, but what do you think of the, the different hard to handles and how the dead handled it? Well, one thing I was going to say quick, you know, you, you, you talked about how it's like relatively concise at eight and a half minutes. It's like kind of closer to nine minutes almost. That's like the second longest song on this disc. And it really points to something you said earlier about how there's not a lot of jamming on this album. Like the the, the trucking is about 10 minutes, but otherwise most of the songs are like in the five minute range. And it is odd. This is on the second disc, but playing in the band is only about five minutes long, which is about how long it is on Skull and Roses. So it is basically just like a song and not a jam vehicle, which it's going to become very soon after this. And this has been the theme with the Dix picks that we've heard lately. Like, we're they're not very jammy. Like, the last mm. several, I feel like, have been very song-oriented. And maybe that's why s- some of them have felt a little stale. Like, I feel like we're not getting big set pieces in these Dix picks. And I think even in this Dix picks, there's some kind... You know, the, like, later in the album, there's, like, one section that you could kind of say is a deep jam. And of course, you know, at the end of the fourth disc, you get like a half hour turn on your love light. So, (laughs) but that's not quite the same thing as like a dark star or even like a really tripped out other one or something. Like we're not getting really great jam set pieces. And it's a little frustrating, I think Mm -hmm. for me Mm -hmm. 
you know, because I feel like that's what you hang your hat on with these dicks picks. Uh, but anyway, getting get back to your question, I feel like when the when the Black Crows did hard to handle, that there were some people that assumed that it was a tribute to the Grateful Dead hmm. more so than even Otis Redding. Even though when they reported that they like Chris Robinson wasn't a Grateful Dead fan yet, that happened a few years later, and once that happened. If you listen to live versions of the Black Crows Hard to Handle, they almost started playing it more like the Pigpen version than they did their original sort of like Aerosmith style, you know, take on it. Like, cause I, yeah. I, I think the idea with it, like George Takulius, who produced that first Black Crows record, was to make Hard to Handle sound like Walk This Way. Like, that yeah. was the formula for it. So it's like I a really totally punchy. Yeah. Yeah, it's it's like a punchy rock song, whereas this it has more of that Otis Redding. It it, it like rolls as much as rocks, you know, mm-hmm. which is like a cool thing about the Otis Redding version and the Grateful Dead version. I mean, in a way, I feel like maybe the Grateful Dead version is like the middle. It's like the missing link between Otis Redding and the Black Crows. Right. Um, but yeah, I love it. I and it's a great again like vehicle for Pigpen just to be this cool tough guy. In a yeah. song. And they do jam it out a little bit. And they jam it out more than they jam out a lot of songs on this. So it's pretty cool. Yeah. And um, it's funny to me. It's a, you know, of course, Bob brought back some of the Pigpen songs. Like, of course, Good Lovin' came back. Turn On Your Love Light came back. And he sort of did the Pigpen thing. Uh, they only brought back Hard to Handle, uh, well, twice. But it was on two consecutive nights in 1982. And I think they only played it because Etta James was with them and sang it. Uh, but hard to handle was one that that, that Bob uh, wouldn't touch, I guess, for whatever reason. It seems like Pigpen owned that song so thoroughly that they didn't want to try it again, even though uh, it was a launch pad for some really good jams. One thing <clears throat> that the recording quality here really helps. I mean, the hard to handle jam sounds really scuzzy. And part of that is that Phil is maybe the loudest instruments <laughs> in this mix. <laughs> At different points during this set, he is like, it is like Phil Lesh and his, you know, quartet. <laughs> is it like he is the lead instrument with his bass? Uh, and so the sparse five piece dead really leaves a lot of room for Phil to go wild. And then this hard to handle is a great example. He's playing almost like it sounded to me like grunge bass, like just this like distorted, almost like bass chords. Uh, in the middle of this hard to handle, which I really liked a lot. It sounds great. So even though I described it as the mellowest Dix picks, it does like build up to these big, like explosive moments, often at the end of pig pen songs, interestingly enough. But yeah, there are there are jams here. They're just of like a a very contained form that aren't as singularly Grateful Dead jams. They seem like more like, you know, a lot of 70s country rock bands, country blues bands would do these sort of like eight, eight-ish minute versions of, uh, you know, classic soul of blues songs.
it's interesting as we move over to the second disc here and we're still at Golden Hall in San Diego, although we're getting a little bit of uh, Chicago in this disc as well. One of the longer songs on this disc picks is one of my favorite performances of the entire record, and it's Sing Me Back Home, yeah, which is a cover of Merle Haggard's song. And this is actually an example of Jerry singing a cowboy song. It's not Bob. This is Jerry right. taking it. And, uh, man, it just made me think that it's a shame that this song fell out of the repertoire in the early 70s. I believe they played it from 71 to 73 or so, and then not really after that. Yeah. And it's great. Like, I, like of all the cowboy songs that we've heard a million times, you know, they keep El Paso, they keep Mama Tried, they keep Me and My Uncle... And those are all, they all have their merits, some of those more than others, but like, this is like a great song and it's a great showcase for Jerry. And I just feel like, oh, you could have kept this around as like a second set Jerry ballad. I think it yeah. would have worked great. It it's such gotten... a beautiful, like, this is such a great performance and I, I just think they killed the song. Yeah, it could have gone right in rotation, right? With Warfrat and Stella Blue and all those songs. That would have been a great late second set sad jerry ballad you know it made me think though do you think bob was uh felt like jerry was moving in on his territory i mean bobby <laughs> bob even has another merle haggard song that he plays <laughs> so i wonder That's if true. part of why it had such a limited run is that bob is like jerry the cowboy thing that's my thing you're you're the nah. you're the sad ballad guy i'm the the cowboy guy uh, even though sing me back home is of course a sad ballad. It's not. Mama Tried is a very different song uh, from Sing Me Back Home. But, it, I mean, yeah, this version is is spectacular. Best thing on this volume, I think. Yeah, I, I would say so, too. It, it's a real stunner. And, I mean, I feel like Bob would be deferential to Jerry with the cowboy songs. I think he would have let Jerry have his cowboy numbers. It may just be a matter of, like, the bench being too full. <laughs> for Jerry ballads and it's like okay this one's expendable you know we already have Stella Blue and we got War Frat we have Morning Dew we can even do Comes a Time sometimes uh, you know we could do China Dolls sometimes you know like we got a deep bench for sad Jerry ballads that being said it would have been cool to even just have this come up occasionally as like a rare treat after 73 right. although I know Phil and friends have been playing this song. I guess Dead & Co. have also revived this I think song. they just brought it back at the Chicago show I didn't go to, so June 24th this summer. And it, to me, it seems like one that they should be playing a lot. That seems like something that old old Bobby would be great at singing. Uh, oh, yeah. Even on that Chicago version, he splits it with Mayer. Um, Sing Me Back Home, you know, it's one of those songs that the older you get, the better it sounds, I think. I'm sure there's some, like, incredible old Merle Haggard versions as well. Uh, yeah, it's it, it, it's a shame. And I, I actually really like a lot of those 72, 73 versions with Donna singing on it too, uh, because Donna does does her Donna thing, but in a nice sort of duetty way with Jerry. And it, that even adds like another interesting flavor to it. Uh, but yeah, I got no complaints about this one.
it just like I mean the Bob jealousy thing you know it goes right into me and my uncle me and my uncle's fine I like me and my uncle it sounds ridiculous though after <laughs> 10 minutes of <laughs> sing me back home it really sounds like oh yeah these are you know some California boys pretending to be country after hearing you know Jerry inhabit uh, this you know beautiful Merle Haggard song well, you just feel like you've been in church, and now you're gonna go to play with the kids in Sunday school. You know, like well, that's yeah. that's the, that's their transition there. Or you're gonna be watching like a movie, a cowboy movie, on uh, you know UHF or something. That's a fun, all of Bob's country songs are like story, like story songs, right? They're like cowboys like getting in gunfights, and and then "Sing Me Back Home" is like a death row, <laughs> like sad country song, like it. They're, they're, they're like two different genres almost, but it, it, it's just funny to hear them clash here. Well, now, you know, like in our fictional scenario where you got Henley and Fry and J.D. Souther and Jackson Brown in the back in their denim shirts leaning against the wall, they're probably starting to perk up around this time of the show because, well, actually, okay, we're in San Diego. I'm, I'm sorry. Right. I'm, I'm, I'm changing the scenario from the Hollywood Palladium. I'm going to be like, they went all down to San Diego to even make fun of this, this show. They're, they're, they're it's only an hour away, right? They could get Yeah, they could there. do it. Yeah. They got. They hopped in uh, David Geffen's limo, and they're checking this out. They're probably they're they're probably perking up though during me and my uncle because they're like, oh yeah, we, you know, this is like just kind of desperado like. We can, we can use this later, you know. It's a similar type vibe. Well, Steve, you've 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 perfectly guessed at what I was getting at here, which is if the dead had stayed in this zone, and just got slicker and slicker. I mean, the Eagles are the band that they anticipate, right? I mean, that's. That is, to me, the logical endpoint of this alternate timeline where the dead stay country rock and rain in the jams, just write sort of these like Americana songs, uh, you know, focus more on, you know, some some hot licks and their harmonies. And maybe they hook up with some producers that give them a shinier sound instead of the sort of, you know, raw, woodsy American beauty, working man's dead sound. Uh so, you know, is this uh, the Grateful Dead, you know, hit just one little nudge in the timeline and maybe the dead could have gone down that that Eagles country rock path is what I'm saying here. I don't think so, because to me, you know, the Eagles, are they're part of that L.A. rock continuum going back to the birds where it's much more about studio craft and less about playing live like the dead, even when they're at the country rock country rockiest they are first and foremost a live band whereas like those la bands when they play live it's about replicating the record and mm-hmm. they're, they're sort of like a studio musician like professionalism that just seems totally antithetical to the dead like even when they even even in a scenario where they're slicking up you know i just i think that's a little too far i don't okay. see that i think the eagles are again they're part of that like the, the birds like uh, Poco, uh, you know, like Dillard and Clark, you know, that whole like sort of like Troubadour sunset strip scene, which I think, again, it's just much more tied to like L.A. studio culture and making records. Well, I think I like your theory better that you came up with without even knowing my theory, which is that all the members of the Eagles were in the crowd at these shows. <laughs> And, and we're like, there's, there's, there's a spark of something here in what the dead are doing, but we're gonna take it and you know run our own way with it. The dead are too sloppy. We're gonna, yeah. we're gonna clean, clean up after these hoodlums and make a bajillion dollars doing, 
the slick watered down version of it. So yeah. maybe that's yeah. maybe that's where the uh, the timelines have crossed here between the Eagles and the Dead. Again, I just like imagining those dudes. They took a road trip to San Diego. They're sitting in the back, shaking their heads, and then they're going to the Palladium <laughs> show, shake their heads there. Pretty good times. One thing I want to add, like. I think the other obvious highlight of the second disc is that not fade away going into going down the road, feeling bad. And then like that cool jam that yeah. comes at the end, like it's the ninth track, which goes in a direction you don't quite expect because it turns down the temperature. And I guess this, you know, you're talking about this being kind of like a mellower show. That's like a mellower jam. And on an album with not a lot of jamming, this is like, you know, some, uh, it's a drink of water in a desert for you jam heads out there because this is like one of the only kind of jammy parts of this record and it's pretty cool yeah i mean they loved playing not fade away and going down the road feeling bad into not fade away in 1971 like when i think of 71 that is like that's the song medley that feels the most dead in 71 to me uh but it was kind of predictable right it would do the sandwich jam where it went from not fade away into uh you know the other song and then back and so I, I found it refreshing in its unpredictable nature here that it doesn't ever circle all the way back to not fade away. It just kind of like, you know, spaces out for, you know, only four minutes, which is not much time at all uh, in dead improv terms, but sounds pretty nice. And I like that, you know, we get to not fade away going down the road feeling bad in this set. And I think that because of this, you know, jam ending to this one, they feel very different to me. They feel very, this one feels very mellow. The other one feels like a lot hotter, a lot more urgent and intense. So it's, it's a good, a good comparison between the two. Now I know you're a big China writer guy, generally speaking. I mean, that's like your favorite, like one, two combo, right? In the, in the, in the dead canon. Like you put I'd that probably, above yeah. like Scarlet Fire or Help Slip Frank. I'd take China Rider, yeah. What'd you think of this China Rider? Because it seemed, again, in keeping with what we've talked about, like not very jammy. Like, yeah. pretty straightforward. I mean, were you getting good China Rider vibes here? Or was this sort of like uh, take or leave it? Yeah, I, no, I kept going back to it because I felt like I hadn't heard it because it goes by so fast. <laughs> like, I would try to exactly. listen to it That's and take I some felt. notes. And then all of a sudden it would be like the third verse of I Know You Rider. And I'd be like, did I just completely space out on the China Rider jam? But no, it's just basically like a Jerry solo and then they're into Rider. Um, and that's just like, I mean, that shows how much they've reined it in during this era, right? Because it, it was jammier before 71 and then it'll get jammier in 72, 73, 74. But now it's just kind of like, here's here's two songs we've stuck together and there's a solo in between. That's it. Yeah. Yeah, I felt the same way. I felt like, oh, wait, did I uh, fall asleep in the middle of this and miss, like, five minutes of a cool interplay? And, like, no, not really. There's not much there. So kind of a letdown, I got to say. You know, you hope for uh, some moments of transcendence in China Rider, and I don't know, I didn't really feel it there.
to uh, the third disc here. And again, we got a lot of covers. Going through a lot of covers here. I got to call out a song that's not a cover, though, that I was really happy to see. I don't know if I'm overrating this song just because it was such a rarity in the dead uh, repertoire. They only played it three times. And according to the Hetty version, this is the best version ever. <laughs> so out of the three times they played it, this is the one, probably because it's the most accessible because it was released on Dick's Picks 35, but the Pigpen song, Empty Pages. Right. Uh, I dig this song. I, you know, to me, there's a meta aspect to this song, like where it's like he wrote a song about how hard it is to write a song and how maybe people don't even want to hear his songs. Yeah. And uh, there's like some pathos to it. Like, you know, some of these lines, empty pages before my eyes do not deny or criticize. So right away, he's like defensive about this song. Don't right. criticize this song. <laughs> Empty bedrooms where I've paid my dues watching the ceiling instead of you. Can you tell me where you're gone? Ain't no one around to hear my songs. I've got some songs that I like to sing. Always brings me down to some other thing. Where can I go? My paths are broken. It seems like your love is just a token. So won't you stay with me? If we're going to get analytical here, we could be like, is he talking about a woman? Is he talking about his own muse? Is he talking about the band? Yeah. You know, there could be lots of things that he's talking about, but, you know, look, we're projecting because we know Pigpen's fate. We know that he dies young. So that adds some layers to this song. But I don't know. I, I found it kind of touching. I don't know if it's a great song, but right. I was moved by it. I, I, and I like this performance quite a bit. Yeah. It's a good companion in this season to what we talked about with the stranger right two souls in communion back on dick's picks 30 which is you know just seven months after this show it's early 72 uh and we talked about it then too but like it's it's so kind of tragic hearing pig pen in this era uh especially when he's not really getting sick yet he's still very vibrance and very much like a co-front man of the band even in this era in 71 but you can also kind of sense the tension right where they love pig pen and they love bringing him out and they love playing songs behind him but he also as an instrumentalist is not what they want <laughs> right like even on like a lot of the newer songs he doesn't play any organ he plays like you know tambourine or something <laughs> or like the the scratchy block uh he's kind of you know pushed off to the side uh for the more exploratory jams so the 70 part of the tension of this transitional era in 71 is that like this is a version of the dead that is very well suited to being to, for pig pen to be in the band like to play a, a blues song every three songs or to play a country song or to play something that he can play organ very simple organ on uh but he's also like holding them back a little bit too. And I think he senses that. And that's what you're picking up on with these lyrics, right? It's like Pigpen is trying really hard to evolve at the same pace that the dead are evolving. And he wants to write his own songs and he wants to write, you know, empty pages and the stranger are not sort of classic Pigpen songs. They're like sadder and slower and a little bit more rock than like these blues vamps that he's known for. Uh, so yeah, I mean, you know, with, with hindsight and knowing that he's going to die within, you know, a year and a half, it's really, it's really a bummer to hear this stuff because like, you know, he was contributing a lot still at this era, but you can kind of also see the, the end 
fast approaching. Well, what you said too, like playing a blues song every third song, like you're kind of not exaggerating on this disc because we also get a Hurts Me Too and a Big Boss Man. So right. lots of blues. But again, with Pigpen singing them, I, I was enjoying it. I, I, I like those numbers. And again, you mentioned that song, The Stranger, Two Souls in Communion, that was on Dick's Picks 30. I thought that song was kind of hokey. I, I'm not as much of a fan of that song. I think Empty Pages is, is like a legit good song. Mm-hmm. I think he was getting somewhere, and I, I think I like the autobiographical aspect of it, at least like what I'm projecting onto it. It feels like it's a personal statement, and uh, I, I like seeing Vulnerable Pig. You know, we're getting the swaggering pig, but we're getting the vulnerable pig. <laughs> you know, he's letting us behind the pig curtain. Exactly. Seeing the man underneath, you know, which is what he was like in real life, I think. I think he exactly, was like this yeah. sensitive, soulful guy. Um, so it's cool to see him, you know, feel like he could bring that into the dead, although he didn't do it very much, obviously, since he only played it three times. One other thing I'll say about this disc in the Chicago show uh, that does not relate to Pigpen, though in, in some way is part of the problem because Pigpen couldn't really join in on these songs. But there's a lot of songs, you know, the other thing that a five-piece dead really puts a focus on is like the vocals. And with the dead, the vocals can be a little spotty from time to time. Uh, but a lot of the American Beauty Working Man's Dead material has these very sort of complex studio harmonies that didn't always translate live but i thought they sounded really good here like there's an uncle john's band back on this too that sounds pretty good there's cumberland blues on this one there's broke down palace it's like the i like this sort of like faster arrangement of broke down palace they were playing around this time um i was pleasantly surprised that the dead sounded you know vocally as good as they do on this like skull and roses like Europe 72 has a lot of overdubs, vocal overdubs, especially, I think. Uh, so it was, I was skeptical that the, the dead could, you know, sort of live up to the studio albums vocally in this era, but I thought they pulled it off pretty well here. Uh, but that's another thing where Pigpen, Pigpen is not singing three-part harmonies on Uncle John's band, right? <laughs> <laughs> so it's another thing that he's kind of left out of as much as he is left out of the exploratory improvisations. So it's just like all these potential futures of the dead, and you can only see Pigpen in like one of them, and it ended up being the one that they didn't really pursue much after this year. 
I mean, it's amazing that uh, Phil was singing those three-part harmonies. Yeah, I mean, he man. sounds pretty good, I think. I mean, you know, Phil's voice is an acquired taste, but he's taking the high part on these songs, man, and he's doing all right. Like, we talk a lot about how Phil 73-74 is, like, peak Phil, but uh, between, you know, a very loud bass and very present bass and singing a hell of a lot on this on these shows, you know, Phil's doing a pretty good job, I think, in this era. He hadn't poured as much beer on his vocal cords yet at this point, I think. So he, yeah. his voice was in better shape. Um, we mentioned this earlier, but uh, Brown-Eyed Women is on this disc. And that's a song that we're all used to hearing and knowing what it's like. And is this the first time they ever played it? I, I This is the second of two auditorium shows. I think they debuted it the night before. And then played okay. it again on the second night here, uh, and yeah, it's like it's not even done yet. <laughs> like they, it has a totally different vocal rhythm. Than... Yeah, it sounds like a demo. It it yeah. sounds very spare, you know, because I always associate that song with having a kind of like glide to it. It always feels very smooth, you know, and you lock into that groove, and it's like being in a cruising car or something. Mm-hmm. And, a really like a convertible Buick or whatever, convertible uh, Cadillac. And this Cadillac, it's like the wheel is like not firmly on the axis and it's a little more sputtering, but like in a pretty cool way. Like it has a really fun energy to it that right. you don't get from like a more polished brown-eyed women. And this is one of those moments where I would maybe say Billy is overplaying a little bit, but I kind of like it. I mean, it's so unusual for brown-eyed women to hear him playing these really busy sort of break beady parts almost <laughs> in the uh uh choruses uh so but uh yeah i mean he's he's maybe doing a little more than the song requires here but they're still figuring it out which is fun so we get over to the fourth disc and we have a uh of course very weird <laughs> jam here and this is, this is probably the biggest jam of the whole album really <laughs> You have Other One into Me and My Uncle, and then back into Other One. I mean, was that something that they did, you know, like very often? I mean, it seems like a weird song to sandwich yeah. in the middle of Other One. They did it a bunch in 71, actually. Uh, again, a, a second shout-out to Grateful Seconds uh, has a post about the uh, the Cosmic Cowboy Medley, which is, I guess, a name for Me and My Uncle, or Other One into Me and My Uncle into Other Ones. And he pinpointed a bunch of them that happened in 71. Uh, the chord progression is pretty similar between these two songs, I guess. Uh, so it's pretty easy to slip from the jam of the other one into Me and My Uncle. And the transition here is actually really nice. Because uh, you can hear Bob suggesting it about a minute before they actually fully drop into Me and My Uncle. And maybe Jerry and Phil are resisting it. It's hard to tell if they're resisting it or just kind of playing taking their time getting into it. Uh, but there's a cool minute where it's sort of both songs at once in that sort of China Rider way that I love. Um, but yeah, it works really well. It reminded me of those dark stars that have an El Paso stuck in the middle of the dark star and then they go back to dark <laughs> right. star, which is right, always right. like the funniest uh, Bob move. Uh, but this one I think flows a little bit better than that one. Because uh, the other one, while this is a pretty spacey other one, uh, is not, you know, into the outer reaches of the galaxy like Dark Star uh, and then suddenly being dropped back into a Hollywood cowboy movie. Uh, but uh, it is kind of funny. Like I noticed when they come back 
out of me and my uncle back into the other one. You hear Phil very aggressively play the other one, like, bass part. <laughs> Almost like he's saying, we're going back into the song, Bob. Like, we played your song, now we've, we've got more to say in the other one space here. So it does seem like a little bit of a friendly disagreement within the band, but it makes for a fun one. of other one which for the other one you know you feel like you just get started and then bob's pulling his shenanigans to get into me and my uncle i love the idea of jerry and phil looking at each other and just like rolling their eyes being like really dude me and my uncle we're gonna do the cosmic cowboy thing here and then finally phil just being like fuck this we're going back to the other one and they hang in there for about six and a half minutes so like yeah i mean that ends up being really like the most substantial jam uh, of the whole record I should say that we are now in the Hollywood Palladium part right. of the Dick's Picks here so coming up toward the end and we get into the deal here and uh, yeah, this is another song again I'm just used to hearing it at the end of a set do we know like what part of the set this was was this like the beginning of the Hollywood Palladium set or the end are we going to like google this quick I'm curious. I mean, it feels like this would maybe be the end of the show. It's kind of like just in the middle of of set two. <laughs> it looks Is like. it? Uh, I mean, Deal, you know, early 70s Deal kind of bounced around the show. Played it a lot in the first set, but yeah. I, I just meant this progression. Like, like does, this, does the show end with Turn On Your Love Light? Mm-hmm. Yes. So okay. we're hearing basically the end of that show. Right. Uh, the last, you know, six or seven songs, depending on how you slice it. And I got to say, I mean, this progression is probably the most logical of this entire set. Like we were talking about how like some like the like the first disc 
it seems like it's almost on shuffle, like the order that they're playing the songs in. But like, I, I feel like this builds pretty well from like that other one jam to deal to Sugar Magnolia, and then you get like the big Magnolia, uh, Morning Dew showstopper, and then like the long turn your love light. Mm-hmm. There is a logic going on here. I think it flows pretty well. Yeah, though I do the turn on your love light is interesting. Like I, I will defend often the like 20 30 minute turn on your love lights as being sort of like maybe not the best thing to listen to at home but probably works awesome in the moment uh this one though it's 1971 so we're over a year after like the dicks picks for half hour turn on your love light i do think that Pigpen is a little tired of doing the turn on your love light thing like it does i don't know if i'm projecting but it does feel a little bit like uh forced i guess this is what they imagine i think you know it's like again to go back to empty pages Pigpen wants to write sad ballady songs like empty pages and you know the dead and their crowd are like no we want you to be the guy that talks about you know hitting on your neighbor for 25 minutes Uh, so he's like a sad clown then right now a little bit sad showman yeah maybe you know we were talking about james taylor you've got a friend was in the top five around this time Maybe Pigpen when he goes home, he's just slapping on some James Taylor on the on the turntable, and he's like, "Man, I want to write. I want to write sensitive guy songs. I don't want to just be the tough guy, the macho, you know, like lover man type dude that I have to be at the dead. I just like want to write about sensitivity, and you know, I'm gonna write this song about how people don't respect that part of myself. You know, right. just like this. I want to write about souls Pigpen. in communion." <laughs> exactly. Exactly. I don't want to, you know, exhort people to turn on your love light. You know, I'm just I've grown past that. Right. I'm in my mid twenties now. I want to, you know, it, maybe he could see like Henley and Fry and Jackson Brown in the back shaking their heads, and he's like, "You're right, man. I'm with you. I want to be like you guys, even though I don't know you yet because you're not famous yet. But you know, <laughs> could have been something like that. I don't know. Yeah, it's. I have to say, I, I liked this turn on your love light. I think because I knew, like, we're we're reaching the end of Dick's Picks here. So it's like, this is the last we're going to hear of Pigpen. Right. So I think there was a part of me who was like, oh, I want to I hang on to Pigpen as long as I can. So, like, mm-hmm. I'll sit yeah. through the 25-minute turn on your love light, and I'll enjoy it because I'm going to miss this guy. Yeah. I mean, I'm going to hear him on another record. I'm still going to listen to Grateful Dead. It's not like I'm no, ever going to hear Pigpen again. We're not allowed to listen to them but, anymore. But... In terms of talking about him into a microphone, you know, this this is probably it. So, yeah, you know, I, I enjoyed that. What would you think of the Morning Dew? Because, you know, we, we've been lamenting not hearing Morning Dew for a while. We we heard it last in Dick's Picks 32. For some reason, I remember it being farther away than that. But that was like an mm-hmm. early 80s version. It wasn't quite the same as hearing a Morning Dew from this era. era but did, yeah. did this deliver... We talk about China Rider kind of fell flat for us, but did this showcase deliver for you again? Yeah, I liked it. And it's another one where having Phil being such a loud lead instrument in the mix with this five piece dead uh, really helps uh, because often it do would be a song where Phil would step up and do that anyway. But here it's like, there's no competition. He's just like blasting Phil bombs at you <laughs> for <laughs> the intro of it. And then into the jam, you know, him and Jerry play it off each other. Just, it sounds really great. So yeah, it's, it's a, it's a good one right here. Uh, I definitely preferred it to hearing sugar Magnolia for the second time on this set, <laughs> which is something that maybe I didn't need, but uh 
yeah, it, it it's nice to have this sort of classic finish here. So, speaking of classic finishes, yeah, we're almost to the end here, Rob. We have Dick's Picks thirty six coming right. up in our next episode. We we've made it, man. I can't believe I it. It's crazy. We started this journey in early 2020. I think when we recorded, there was no COVID. But then it, no. COVID quickly came into our lives after that. Um, and now we both have had COVID. <laughs> you know, We've come out the we, other side. Yeah, We made it. We made it. Uh, and yeah, we're about to do Dick's Picks 36. I, I can't believe it. Yeah. Uh, it's... It's been a marathon, and we're we're coming up to the final mile. We're about to get that like uh, you know weird like sort of runner's high from hitting the yep. last mile. We've been we're on our like eighth wind. We're we're, we're we can the finish line is in sight, uh, and you know they they're dropping a, a, a pretty solid dicks picks on us to wrap it up right with possibly the greatest dark star of all time. We'll see. It's, uh, yeah. supposedly dick's favorite dark star of all time uh it's up there yeah, it's up there right in the uh the sweet spot of uh you know this series really hammering hard that september 72 is something you should pay attention to so we're, we're yes. finishing back up where we've been a couple times previously so it's gonna be a trip can't wait to do it although maybe i can wait to do it because you know we don't <laughs> What are we going to do after this show is done? I, I have no idea. We're just going to be in a corner somewhere. <laughs> Talking about the crying. dead to ourselves. Yeah. <laughs> we're going we're gonna, to we're, we're gonna be like Pigpen writing empty pages. You know, <laughs> We're going to be in that state of mind. It's going to be nuts. But thank you all for listening to this episode. And uh, yeah, we will be back with our last Dick's Picks of all time. The grand finale. Can't wait for it. See you guys later. Peace. Six from the Vault is hosted by me, Stephen Hyden, and Rob Mitchum, and produced by Osiris Media. It is edited and produced by Brian Brinkman. All music is composed by Amar Sastry, unless otherwise known. Logo design is by Liz B. Art and Design. The executive producer of 36 from the Vault is RJB. Hey, what's up? My name's Lurk, and I'm the host of Lamgoat's Van Flip Podcast. Every week, I have in-depth conversations with bands from all over the scene, big and small. We also like to keep our finger on the pulse and showcase up-and-coming bands on the show as well. So come check out Lamgoat's Van Flip Podcast. Hey, this is Aaron from No Simple Road. I'm inviting you to come hang out with Apple, Mel, and I as we talk with the musicians, artists, chefs, authors, and beyond from the world that turns us on. We're reaching into the improvisational music scene, the psychedelic culture, the festival world, and getting to know what makes the people tick that create those scenes. Come join us on the long, strange trip over at No Simple Road.